This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with a company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. Let's face it, bookkeeping is hard, and it's not really what you're good at anyway. Bench.co is the online bookkeeping service that pairs you with a team of dedicated bookkeepers who use simple, elegant software to do your bookkeeping for you. Check it out at bench.co slash JavaScript Jabber for 20% off today. They focus on what matters most, and that's why they're there. Once again, that's bench.co slash JavaScript Jabber. This episode is sponsored by Wrangle.io. Wrangle's been working with Angular 2 for a long time. And they are now putting together an eight-hour, two-day course designed to help Angular developers learn how to write apps in Angular 2. If you're looking to level up your JavaScript and Angular 2 skills, then go to wrangle.io slash training and click on the link for Angular 2 training. If you're looking for other training in React or JavaScript, they also have that available at wrangle.io slash training. This episode is sponsored by Rollbar. One of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors. Ugh! Relying on users to report errors, digging through log files to try debugging issues, or a million alerts flooding your inbox ruining your day. With Rollbar's full-stack error monitoring, you get the context, insights, and control you need to find and fix bugs faster. It's easy to install, and you can start tracking production errors and deployments in 8 minutes or less. We have a special offer for JavaScript Jabber listeners. Go to rollbar.com slash jsjabber and sign up to get the bootstrap plan free for 90 days. That's 300,000 errors tracked for free. Loved by developers at awesome companies like Heroku, Twilio, Kayak, Instacart, Zendesk, Twitch, and more. Give Rollbar a try today. Go to rollbar.com slash jsjabber. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 226 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Amy Knight. Hello. Jameson Dance. Hello, friends. Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Quick shout-out about uh, React Remote Comp and Angular Remote Comp coming up in October and September. We also have a special guest this week, and that is Justin Searles. Hi, everybody. Do you want to give us a quick introduction to who you are? I would rather make Jameson Dance introduce me. I'm going to introduce Justin. <laughs> Justin is the foremost Rubyist in the JavaScript scene. <laughs> <laughs> Justin, I'll, I'll do a better job. Justin runs a consultancy, Help Test Double, which is always hiring. He talks at a lot of conferences, and he gives fantastic talks, actually. Uh, I've really enjoyed the, the talks of his that I've seen. And he cares a lot about testing. I feel like he writes and speaks a lot about testing. Other things, too, but, but a lot of it around testing and how to be better at testing and how to not be worse at testing, which sound like they're two different things, kind of. Is that an okay intro? That was humbling. 
<laughs> like in a good way or a bad way? <laughs> uh, I, I think that you are really good at doing intros and you're not bad at doing intros, James. Oh, thank you. It's pretty good to me. So we've had you on the show before, Justin. I don't recall what exactly we talked about then, but uh, this time we're going to be talking about testing. It was Jasmine. Oh, was it I Jasmine? Yep, talked about Jasmine. I remember that one. Well, we're still talking about testing. We're talking about testdouble.js and TeenyTest. I read your article that explains what TestDouble is and compares it to SignOn. I have to admit, I don't know if I followed all of it. So why don't you give a brief overview of what TestDouble is, and then we can start asking questions and talking about the approach that it takes and why people may, you know, depending on their philosophy about testing, prefer one tool over the other. Yeah, right. So here's a pro tip to everyone in the audience if they want to, uh, you know, rise to prominence in whatever software community they're in. And that is find an area where people don't care very much about stuff and then choose to care a lot about that. Obviously, building code that's awesome in production is everybody's job. So everybody cares a lot about that. And it's really hard to like, you know, make a name for yourself on that. And last time I was on the show, it's because I was working really hard to try to improve the state of testing. For primarily, I mean, front end JavaScript, Node.js wasn't really a significant force then. And it's, I found it difficult to like communicate the importance of or the relevance of like a secondary thing that is its own entire school of thought with tons of jargon and complexity to people who just, for them, it's, you know, testing is important, but it's obviously secondary to getting stuff done. When we talk about mocking frameworks or mocking libraries or test doubles or stubs or spies and all of uh, the words we use to just mean fake thing in a test, that's now like a particularly nuanced like aspect of testing. That's really, if anything, a tertiary concern for almost everybody. And if anything, I've just kind of like lasered in on this one particular uh, problem domain for no other reason other than my own dissatisfaction with mocking libraries first in Java and Ruby and now in JavaScript. And it's just some something's been stuck in my craw for years over it. And so I care a lot about it, but I understand at the same time that most people listening to the show may not have any idea what a mocking framework is, even if they write a lot of tests. Uh, a lot of others will will have discovered one, and the most dominant one in JavaScript is called Sinon or Sinon. They have formal pronunciation. Jameson and I were actually in, in, in uh, uh, Oslo, Norway uh, last month, and uh, several of like uh, the author, the original author's coworkers were there, and I was asking them, "How do you pronounce this thing?" And they tried to get me an official answer, but I still got like four different answers for how to pronounce it. So, regardless, uh, Sinon is is the incumbent test double library for JavaScript. It gets millions of downloads every month, and I've always been frustrated by it. First, to tell you like what a test double library even sets out to do is when you're testing stuff, oftentimes having everything be real is not ideal. Maybe you're trying to write a integration test that focuses just on your code, but not necessarily on the services that it depends on. Uh, or maybe you're trying to do isolated unit tests where you're testing just a particular function and you want to verify the interactions that that function has with the things that it depends on, as opposed to actually making sure that the whole thing works. A lot of people who practice test-driven development want to get that so that they can get better design feedback from their tests. And so those are the two primary motivations for like why you'd want to like fake out something when you're writing a test. And Sinon, I'm just going to keep making up a new pronunciation every time I say it. That's good. I feel, I feel swirly. Like it's, swirly. I feel like it's less thoughtfully designed than the leading or dominant 
test double libraries and other languages. The API is confusing. It's all over the place. It kind of mixes up, you know, jargon like stub and spy, and it's not very formal about them. It mutates a bunch of stuff without really asking. It's difficult to reset global state. It has this chainable API, but it's still really hard to do a lot of very common things as one-liners. And I saw all those problems, and I just kind of bit my lip for three years until we got enough a test double project experience of, of, of people helping teams, large teams that are that are writing a lot of tests again and again find that they don't understand how 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 to use test doubles or mocks well and they don't even really understand what they're accomplishing. And a big part of that was that they found that the sign on API was fighting against them. It wasn't really helping encourage proper use. And can, can I'm I, go can ahead. I ask you to do a brief aside. I know this is another gigantic, enormous, like fractally complex topic. But can you do a brief aside into like the right way to mock things out versus ways that might cause you pain? Because I, I know that I've heard stuff about kind of the dangers of overmocking and, and how that can make your test really brittle and lead to some negative consequences. But what, what is the right way to do that? Is that something you can talk briefly about? Oh, man, for sure. I could also talk longly about yeah, it, yeah, like, I, like I just did about um, mocks. Sorry for that. They, this And this is exactly the kind of risk, right? Is I'll just talk over everybody's heads because this is something that is really complex. But to yeah. break it down as simply as I can, I think it gets back to what I was saying earlier about there being two motivations for wanting to fake something out in your tests. One motivation is... I want to test this, but not everything can be real. Maybe some of those services are too slow, or maybe I want to be able to run my tests offline, uh, or maybe, I don't know what, maybe it's just a pain to get this test to work, and it would be a lot easier for me to write this test if I could fake out that object or this function. And, so, and, so like the test needs a database connection or something, and you just want to... And that, yeah, and that's, that's sort of the classical example, and maybe people start there, but then... Once, because it's a powerful thing to be able to just fake out reality, right? Uh, it becomes a golden hammer for a lot of teams. And so they just sort of, as a, as a tool of convenience, start mocking stuff out willy nilly, but without like a really governing principle over it. And that's where I think you get into discussions of over mocking. Now, keep in mind too that when I said that there's two motivations, we're still on the first one and it probably represents 99% of how people tend to use mocking libraries because they're, they're very convenient. Uh, they solve a very immediate need. But when you use them in a way that isn't particularly disciplined, you just end up with a bunch of tests that have some amount of decreased confidence. Like I'm less, as I mock more and more stuff, I'm less and less certain that the thing that I'm testing is behaving the same way in my test under the same conditions as it would in production. And that's where the, you know, people start to hate on it, right? Like they can't trust the test. They don't understand the purpose of the test. They don't know what's real and what's fake. When it breaks, they don't know like how all of the, Test doubles are set up to go in and fix it. That's the first category. Does that make sense of test double use? Yeah. And in general, I said 99% of use is that category. The other 1% of use is people making all the test double libraries. They're people who care a lot about isolated test-driven development. So if you go back and you look at, like, for Java, there was Mokito uh, or, or, or JMock, uh, Ruby had like FlexMock early on or Mocha. The authors for all those were trying to facilitate isolated test driven development. Back when we were in Oslo, did, did a new talk to try to like illustrate what that looks like. But at, at a high level, it means say I'm doing a new express route and it's a controller and I, I want to use, uh, tests to help tell me uh, how to break that problem down. So if I'm doing three things and I know the controller needs to do three things, rather than just, you know, 
write a test and then try to solve everything, I'll think up front, hey, how could I break this problem down? I wish I had maybe something that went and fetched items and then something that transformed those items into you know, data that I can, third thing, send off to a service. So I'm going to create three fake things to represent those three responsibilities, write a test, wire it up, make the test pass, and now I've got three smaller problems. And that's how I actually use test doubles and the patterns of how you use them and like what features you need are a little bit different. Uh, so you end up with a very opinionated API that has a very clear story to tell about how it's supposed to be used. But unfortunately, we don't have really great marketing from the perspective of like why this is a valuable approach to building software. And it gets mucked up with uh, the complications of people who genuinely just need mocks just to fake stuff out. Uh, and I think that's really the tension that we've been dealing with all this time. Sure. So that second approach you talked about is kind of, is that something you'd see in that, like in the book, Growing Object-Oriented Software? Yes, absolutely. That was the genesis of it all. Okay. That makes sense. Thanks for answering my tangent question. Not a tangent at all, to be honest. I think it really kind of cut to the heart of the issue. Some people may have heard of the book Goose. Uh, you know, it's been called outside in testing, isolationist testing. Uh, Martin Fowler calls it mockist testing. I started calling it discovery testing because I figured that like, if we just keep throwing labels at a wall, maybe one will finally stick. Someone's going to get famous and it's going to be the person that invents that label that sticks. Right. Exactly. And then you testing a Bugatti made out of discovery testing. Yeah, right. That's the goal. Anyway, I don't know. I mean, I just uh, talked a great length and relatively like granular level of detail. Does anyone have experiences that they can share about uh, about mocking or sign on that might be pertinent? It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when, when I was learning how to write tests, granted, this was in Ruby, but, you know, I sat down my first the first person I asked about mocking and stuffing was Jim Wyrick, who wrote FlexMock in Ruby. And, uh, you know, as I came to understand it, basically, yeah, I mean, I would use mocks to isolate or, or basically to make it so I didn't have to worry about the particular parts of whatever I was testing that weren't core to what I wanted to, the test to be about. And yeah, I found that it simplified a lot of things because then it was, okay, I don't have to care if the service is down or the API server is down. I don't have to care if the, you know, the database has the right data in it because I can basically tell something, act like the database and just give back the data I want. And then uh, occasionally I would also get into the uh, places where it was like, I need to know that this was called because it was just mission critical that, you know, that particular API was called. And again, it just simplified things. It made things easier to keep track of. And, and that's where I really like mocks. I wanted to back up too. And, you know, I always like to like get your advice or opinion on newer developers because I know, so for me, you know, when I first learned how to do testing, really didn't start with like mocking and stubbing because I think the process of learning how to test your code when you are very, very, very new, that's kind of mind boggling in itself first. And so when you start adding, you know, how to do an actual like proper test by mocking things. Like if you're not doing just, if you need to mock out things that your actual test needs, it can get overwhelming. So at what point do you think it's good to start actually using those things? I think that it's very easy when you're, when you're new to succumb to the power of the tools that you have in front of you and, and try to mix in a whole lot of stuff all at once. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Um, And then, and then get overwhelmed because you know how to do a lot of stuff, but you definitely don't understand how it works. Yep. It very quickly, you can, the why you're doing what you're doing can slip away, right? That's, that's my favorite thing I like to bring up. Exactly. 
So we don't want that, right? And and I think that the best developers I know are those thoughtful ones who never do anything without knowing why they're doing what they're doing. And, and what I would recommend is to get, if you're new to testing, start by writing really realistic tests. Tests that call through your whole system just like a real user would use it. So if it's a browser application, start with tests that automate browsers. If you're building a little module that, that talks restfully to other web services, write a, a client that will talk to it over HTTP and then test it that way. And that way, you're getting very valuable experience because you're learning how to structure tests in like a way that you know does the setup, invokes the thing, verifies the behavior reliably, and hopefully consistently focusing on consistency, focusing on organization, keeping stuff relatively simple. But everything that you do in that case will be valuable because out the other end, you're going to have a test that you're pretty confident actually exercises the thing like reality because you're keeping everything pretty real. Where I'd encourage people to start looking at a library like Testable or Sign-On is probably if they start to learn test-driven development. And if you want to get into test-driven development, my biggest objective typically when I'm teaching somebody is to encourage them to focus on design. You're writing a test of a new thing that doesn't exist yet, Try to imagine what things you wish. If these things that don't exist, if they existed, they could do my job for me so much more nicely than this test that I'm trying to actually write right now would become easy. And using mocks can be a great sounding board for developing those things. And there's a, a whole discipline, and it, certainly it's not something we can solve over audio and, and explain in great detail. But that's probably the moment where I'd encourage somebody to cut their teeth on mocking libraries as opposed to bringing it into an existing a, a, a set of set of integration tests and just sort of, you know, using it as convenient because then you end up with very inconsistent use. And I found that inconsistency is typically the biggest root cause of frustration that people have with test suites. It's a good answer and good advice. So Joe, you're a big fan of CNON, and but you, I know that you took at least a minute to check out Testable in advance. How would you compare the two so far? Um, actually, I was really impressed with uh, what you did with Testable. I've spent a ton of time. I'm going to have a hard time coming up with your alternate. I've always pronounced it one way. So uh, I'm going to, maybe I should do something completely wacky. Sanoon, how about that? That was my alternate. Sanoon. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I'll go with Sanoon. You can do, you can have Sanoon. Okay. I'm, I'm happy to share my alternate with you too. <laughs> no, I'll call, I'll end up just calling it sign on all the time, but uh, I've got a, a lot of experience with sign on. I was really happy to discover when I first came over to the JavaScript world because I was a huge TDDist long before I ever started front end development, you know, back in the early 2000s. So I was really happy to have sign on available to do all this sort of stuff and really liked the API. And then I read your article. And I'll be honest, when I first saw that you had written this article about test-double.js, uh, my first initial reaction was, well, this is probably just going to be uh, your own, like, oh, I like it. You know, I like red instead of blue. I, I, I like uh, apples instead of oranges. So I've coded this up to be my flavor. I like this flavor, but not the other flavor. And that's what this is for. But I was a lot more impressed uh, at the thought that you gave through the API. And uh, you actually point out a lot of problems with the sign-on API that I'd never truly noticed before. You, maybe it was, it's, I wouldn't, don't want to call it Stockholm syndrome by any means, but you use a product. And if it's the only product available, the only real other mocking library that was out there at any in use at all is Jasmine's spy library, right? And a few people use that, and it just it doesn't have a lot of features to it. It's very limited. 
So it's okay, but Cyanon was far more feature complete. So I just got very used to Cyanon, even though I have experience with a lot of server-side language test mocking libraries, various ones, and I've seen a bunch of different kinds of APIs. So I'm definitely opinionated on the matter, but maybe I just, it was the only game in town, and so I got very used to it. But reading your article, I've seen a lot of intelligence and thought going into, hey, there's ways to make this better. Your points about how the chainable API can actually cause problems because you can very easily conflict with what you earlier done in the chain. And then it becomes very confusing as to what's going on. So I was really impressed with testable JS and thought this is actually in, you know, without spending significant time with testable JS, it looks to me like a next step forward. Well, that, that's very kind of you, and I appreciate it. I think what I'd say is uh, if a lot of thought went into Testable, it's probably because I, I first had to foist upon the world a bad mocking framework for Java and then a bad mocking framework for Ruby. Uh, and I learned a lot of lessons about what, at an implementation level, it might look like. But the biggest thing I learned in trying to get people on board with them is that people have patience for rough edges around production dependencies they're going to use a lot, right? Like Express has some quirks in its API and people will suffer that because they they need it, they use it. But what I found is that with, like I said, a tertiary concern like mocking, people aren't just willing to like devote the, the headspace to understand really what's going on beneath the covers, much less deal with the nuances presented by like, you know, in the instance of Sinon, a really, really gigantic surface area of its API. The number of different permutations and ways that you can do things are very, like you said, like I think problematic. And for most users, they they, they don't actually experience that because they only interface with it at like a, a very thin level. Uh, and it actually does have a lot of power. You can do a lot of uh, a lot of things with it, but it makes it hard to find those things, especially things that you might need to do frequently. Right. Uh, I, I, I want to like, popularize these ideas with Testable. I want to give input as a novice user of Sinon. I have been overwhelmed and, and felt the constant fear that I'm doing something wrong because I'm using like four functions out of the 8,000 that it has or something. And I'm not super well-versed in mocking or the theory of it. So I'm kind of counting on the library to guide me. And, and I just don't know. I'm like, I assume I must be doing something wrong because I'm, I'm not using very much of it. Right. Yeah. Like I feel like I'm not a very good target audience to judge because even though I worked a ton with sign on and I have a lot of exposure and experience with testing, I probably don't represent uh, the majority of people who are going to use a mocking library, which is people that, like you said, it's a very tertiary concern. I've got, I need to get this thing done. In order to get this done, I've got to use this technology and I don't want to spend a month learning it. For me, I was more than happy to dive into sign on and learn every nuance and little bit. And I was able to compare it to something I already knew somewhere else. Whereas for somebody who just wants to quickly figure out how to do basic tasks and move forward, it's a very big, a very complex product. Now, that being said, I also feel like it was a great product and still feel like it's a great product. It's very feature complete. The documentation is pretty reasonable, especially for a project that's mostly handled by one guy. So it's a great product, but I like that you're taking another iteration on the whole idea and saying, all right, well, let's approach this. And I also feel like, again, you have so much experience, it's easy to get lost in the details and in the forest and create something that's easy for somebody who is highly experienced and an expert in the topic. And instead, it looks to me like you've created something that's going to be easy for people to onboard with. And my first experience with a mocking library, if it's this thing, you know, if it's test 
double, then it's actually going to be smoother than it could be. Yeah. Um, you know, I, Jameson, to your point, I think that opinionated libraries tend to be superior to unopinionated ones because they have the kind of focus to not let feature creep come in. Uh, the documentation is a lot easier to write when, when the author has very strong opinions. I've actually, I have really struggled with sign-ons documentation, to be honest. And the whole thing that led to me writing Testable was I was struggling to figure out how to use it. Uh, despite having a lot of experience. And so I'll link for you guys like the, the documentation for Testable. It actually does go really, really deep in depth. And, and the intention isn't necessarily that you have to go read that right now because there is the TLDR at the top. But just to make sure for people they understand why I'm doing what I'm doing, all of the different options that are available so that it's like really searchable. I want to make it really easy to master this stuff because I feel like there's just not enough people who've been given the opportunity to really understand mocking well yet, especially in JavaScript. So can I bring up a, a thing I've encountered? For me, the choice whether to use sign-on or not was like, is it easier for me to just write a stubbed out function myself and, and like set some value inside the closure it, it creates? Can you talk about when you decide to use a library versus when you just change things yourself and then change them back? Does that question even make sense? Yeah, I think that the terminology in Agile land where I came from originally would be to roll your own mocks, so to speak. Because I have this library now that's really like, I like to say lightweight because it doesn't really have any meaning. It's just like a general like positive word. You it can just use means good. Yeah. Yeah. Lightweight yeah. Good if you write JavaScript. It's, yeah. It's just a humble brag. Modular. Say modular. Yeah, super modular. Because testable is easy to slot in, easy to use. And if you call a reset once, you're confident you're not going to like accidentally muck with any global state. I would use it all the time. But I think that where a lot of people who roll their own mocks like that strategy is that, every, like we said earlier, they, they can definitely understand everything. And if they're really consistent about how they write and structure all their tests, they probably won't end up writing like some gigantic, massive regime of test helpers and fake mock stuff. So I'm all about like local fakes where that helps add clarity to the test. I just feel like I'm always pushing against NIH, especially when we're talking about testing. And for listeners who don't know, NIH stands for not invented here, you know, people reinventing wheels. Well, and I think that testing is a little bit complicated by the fact that in, in JavaScript specifically, due to duck typing and monkey patching, you can do a lot of the faking very easy as long as you have a rudimentary understanding of JavaScript. So you might get really, really far writing your own mocks, but a mocking library has so many features that you're missing out on, you can often not realize what you're missing out on. Hey, Joe, can you actually define those for people really quick in case they don't know? <laughs> Sure. Duck typing is the idea that if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. So in JavaScript, if I have an object that has a property name and I'm expecting an object that has a property name and age, right? And I'm going to feed it into some function that requires both a name and an age. All I have to do to the object that already has a name to make it work is give it an age and add an age property to it. And now because it has a name and it has an age, it's going to work just fine in the function. And, and other more strictly typed languages like, say, C-sharp or Java, you're relying on the type. If I create an instance of a class A and I create an instance of class B and they both have the same properties, if I'm expecting class A, even though class B has the same properties, it's not going to work. If both class A and class B have name and age and I have a function that expects class A and instead I give it a class B, it's not going to work, right? So that's not duct typing. Uh, in JavaScript, so long as the object that you're feeding in has all the properties that the function or algorithm expects, 
JavaScript works just great. So that's duct typing. And then monkey patching is in JavaScript specifically, right? That's the ability to go in and add more functions to an exist already existing object. I don't know, maybe there's a better explanation for monkey patching if anybody has one. I know that's a thing that happens a lot in Ruby, so maybe Justin can give us a idea of that. Yeah, it was definitely like for me the first time I heard those words was when I was doing Ruby. Yeah, but it's definitely something that you can do in JavaScript as well where you effectively open a, um, in this case it's not a class, but you can open a, a functions prototype or open an object and add or modify what the functions or what the properties are. Right. You could actually modify existing functions, which is kind of an aspect of monkey patching. In the middle of a running program. Right, exactly. In the middle, so just uh, like monkeys do, hence the name monkey. <laughs> <laughs> right. In yeah, the middle you know, of running programs, that's what I they don't, do. I don't know if it's still around, but I remember when underscore was just starting to become a thing. I think it was called SugarJS was kind of a similar project, except what it did was it monkey patched the prototype of all of JavaScript's built-ins like number and array and, and string to, to try to either add additional functionality or clean up, you know, uh, cross-browser quirks. Uh, and that's, you know, all well and good unless you pull in some third-party code that doesn't assume that string and array have been monkeyed with, hence all the monkey references. I will mention, though, that the first time that I discussed monkey patching with somebody who is a Node.js developer, they used the term duck punch, and uh, I kind of, that one's grown on me. I think that's a Python yeah. thing, right? I heard uh, Paul Irish use duck punching in a talk that he gave. But, you know, monkey patching also kind of has a grown-up cousin to it, which we call polyfills and shims. They're basically kind of the same thing. That's true. Yeah, I haven't thought of that. Monkey patching is what you call it when you want to make fun of it, and polyfill yes. is what you call it when it makes your program work. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah, I've seen monkey patches that make programs work. But the problem with monkey patches is because you've done it at runtime in the middle of the running program, and you've made these changes... Uh, you may make changes that don't then meet the assumptions that other people or other parts of the program have for that particular object or function. And so right. then when they call it and they, they pass in something that they assume should be an integer, for example, and you've monkey patched it so it accepts a string and it can't be properly coerced, then you've got a problem. Or But if it can be properly coerced, then you've polyfilled it. <laughs> and you've done it. <laughs> Yeah, Jameson's got the right marketing mind here, you know. Yes, <laughs> yes, he does. But I'll have a Bugatti made out of polyfills. Yeah, when so, I when I want when I want to criticize, you know, and I call it a mocking framework, and when I want to promote my thing, I call them test doubles. Because <laughs> <laughs> mock is such a negative word, right? So to go back to those two terms, duck typing and monkey patching, or the more fun duck duck punching, because of those aspects of JavaScript, the fact that you can take an existing object and modify its properties, its methods at runtime, you can easily take an algorithm that expects to receive some object and then call a method on that object. And maybe this the object that you're going to pass in is like your database API or your HTTP API. So when it makes this call on this function, it's supposed to actually call across and make a web call. And instead, you pass in an object that just has like an empty function instead of a function that will really call, make an HTTP call. So it's very easy to by hand say, oh, my algorithm expects to pass in, you know, this to bring in this HTTP object. I'm just going to pass in my own object that looks like it, at least as far as the algorithm concerns is concerned. Because maybe the original, the full HTTP object has 20 methods and 15 properties, but my function only calls one method on it. So I only need to pass in an object with that one method, which is duct typing at its finest. 
So it's easy to do this by hand, whereas in a language like C Sharp or Java, it's tons, tons more difficult. Setting that up by hand would be very problematic, so you'd really want to use a mocking library there. So JavaScript, you can just get a lot farther, a lot easier, as long as you understand the language a bit. Yeah, well, and I think you also illustrated well the the reason why mocking makes things simpler is because then you don't have to have a fully inflated object with valid state in it for all of the things that it can possibly do. It just has to respond to one message and send one answer back. And so you just create an object that duct types that one interface and that's it. Joe mentioned something about how convenient it is to like get up and go with JavaScript because you can just go in and kind of cut out and put in some new functionality. And if you guys wouldn't mind, Jameson and I were chatting offline a little bit. I'd like to steer the conversation to just talk about Node.js specifically and sort of the broader kind of culture that, that we find ourselves in. Because I think that there's actually like a real human reason for why I spent the time to write testdouble.js. And I'd like to start with putting Jameson on the spot and asking him if he thinks I, I've been too negative towards Node.js the last few years. I think you are probably the most negative person that still uses it <laughs> that I see consistently. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that it's too negative, though. I think sometimes people who adopt a technology adopt it because they like it. And then there can be this tendency to feel like you need to support it. Like you have to be on the technology side and, and you can't point out what it's bad at, maybe. Or, or you need to kind of be a cheerleader to make sure it succeeds. And I, I think it's really valuable sometimes to get an outsider. I don't know, not an outsider because you, you do a ton of node, but I would say you have a perspective from lots of other communities as well, where you can look at some of the things in the node community and say like, Hey, in community X, this specific thing is way better. And like, why can't we make it better in node? Was that enough of a waffle, like wishy washy non answer to avoid no. getting in trouble? No, that, that I think set me up pretty well just to say, you know, Everywhere I go, we started this call, you know, before before recording, and somebody said, you know, I'm like a, a a Ruby guy. Well, when I go to like Ruby conferences, I'm a JavaScript guy. When I go to Agile conferences, they just don't know who I am. And you a waterfall guy there? <laughs> yeah, I, I, apparently. So I th and I th I think you're right because like people pick sides, they get invested in their favorite technologies, and then they, it's like you you know they're rooting for their team. There's a lot of good stuff about Node, and primarily like I think that the conversations that it starts. The way that I look at any technology is through like a pop culture kind of lens. Like I don't think of like Node as being necessarily a popular technology on its own technical merits per se. I think of it as through like the different pressures the industry is under right now. You know, like the prevalence of, of nine week boot camps everywhere has us looking for ways to help people get started in that short period of time. So you're not going to teach people Haskell in nine weeks to build production apps, but JavaScript is relatively easy to get started with. All of the different, like, you know, millions of NPM modules that can plug anything up to anything else are like catnip for startups that just want to see, you know, a proof of concept go to, a, 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 you know, a, an MVP in 30 days. Hey, can I break in really quick and just say, if there is a nine-week Haskell program, please let me know I'm interested. Yeah, I want to go too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, actually, I think a Haskell summer camp would have a pretty big market. Uh, I think there's a lot of people who'd be interested in that, but I don't. I don't think that they'd be promising, you know, ninety uh, percent of candidates getting hundred thousand dollar jobs <laughs> after nine weeks programming Haskell. Well, and you'd have to make sure that the business model is functional. Sorry, I couldn't help it. Ha! 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 But Jameson, I think my my what I've slowly learned 
I was taken aside several times and told, be more constructive, provide more solutions. Don't be so negative and, and don't, don't just make people feel bad, which I think is what I, I just hate people that say that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want anyone to feel bad. You know, if somebody loves working with Node, what I want to do, I feel, I think that I started feeling like the oxygen had been sucked out of the room. Everyone's talking about async, small things, get up and go, build something in, in, in five minutes, adopt, 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 start, start little tiny stuff and then make a big mess later. And the worry that I had was people wouldn't think about all these other conversations. Like none of it was really informed by all the design principles I learned from extreme programming. Uh, we don't talk a lot about domain driven design or object oriented programming or functional programming and like what those lessons could bring to like these gigantic monolithic express apps that I see pop up everywhere that reinvent a million wheels. And I see a ton of low-hanging fruit for helping a lot of Node.js teams out. And that's frankly like half of Test Double's business now is we work with teams building Node.js to try to like show them the cool ways to make systems more stable that we learned in other ecosystems. Because it only makes sense that, that a lot of it would cross-pollinate and apply. So I'm just not, I'm, I, I wanted to get on the record that I'm not here to be totally just a sourpuss when it comes to Node and, and NPM. Duly noted. So... I would say when I look at the JavaScript community compared to other communities, I see a lot of focus on both learning the fundamentals of the language, which is really cool. There's a ton of resources to learn ES6 and get really in-depth familiarity with how that works. And then how frameworks work. There's a lot of resources about building apps in Angular or React or Ember or whatever. Um, I feel like I see less resources around design. I guess that gets to what you were saying, Justin. Whereas um, in communities like Ruby, for example, there's a lot of books about designing good applications. And then like in Ruby is a little postscript stuck on the end, but it's, it's a lot focused around Ruby is the specific thing we'll look at. We'll, we'll, the, the lens we'll use to look at these technical problems, but we're really focused on teaching you how to design and build good applications. Is that That's kind of a same thing, something similar you see? Oh, go ahead, Amy. Oh, I was just going to say, thank you for asking that because I definitely feel that too. Like that's one thing I really miss about other programming language communities. Yes, that's exactly what I mean. I think that the people uh, who have experience in other communities, now that Node.js is not going anywhere, and I think web technologies in general have just eaten the world. It's, that means it's a big enough tent now for us to start having you know conversations uh, that might cut against or balance out some of the you know, maybe excesses of really small things or get stuff out the door and really like, like, you know, five minutes to five days kind of mentality that I see on in a lot of Node.js developers. If when you say really small things, do you mean the whole kind of tiny modules movement? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, ti the tiny modules, the anti-monolith, the anti-framework sentiment. I think that we could stand to balance things out a little bit by voicing, you know, for instance, Sometimes what you need is a framework. If we, if you're doing a thing that's been done a thousand times, if you're building a CRUD JSON API, you probably don't need to come up with your own custom set of routing names. You know, there's probably something that could, could provide that solved problem, uh, a solution for you that you'd have the benefit of conventions that, you know, could translate to all your other projects instead of just insisting on building everything all over again with a whole bunch of little tiny, tiny modules that are kind of curated person by person. Uh, th these are conversations that I think happen in the corners, but because they aren't of the ilk that kind of made Node popular, they're seen as being like anti the future by a lot of the advocates. And getting back to your point about teams, I feel like uh, they're viewed as being just spoiled sports. 
So are you saying that these abstractions maybe exist in Node and people just aren't using them or just that the Node community itself doesn't put enough effort on them to build them up? Right now, I'm focused on awareness, right? Like, I, I try to have the hard conversations about design, about testing, lessons I've learned. I'm thinking about putting together a talk this fall called Agile.js, where literally I just go through a deck of, here's cool stuff I learned from the Agile community uh, that you probably don't know if you've only spent time in the JavaScript community, because the, the Agile community doesn't write a lot of JavaScript, it seems like. I'm not here. I, I'm sure that a lot of you, you look at NPM, right? And there's 300,000 modules. I'm sure that a lot of them do exactly what I need, but I just don't know about them yet. And I found that scratching my own itch by articulating the thing that I really mean through an opinionated library, like I've done with Test Double or with Teeny Test, uh, which is a test runner that we've made. Our hope is that we can use those as concretions to have the continue to carry the conversation forward. And hopefully, you know, the community is, as it matures, becomes more and more open to like having multiple perspectives on things like what makes for a good test or a good module. And I'm just, I'm, I'm hoping to see things open up. Hmm. So let's, let's say I am a JavaScript developer and I, I've kind of come up in this node world where the value is a lot on features and product and getting things out the door and building stuff. And I do want to get started kind of digging into design and abstractions and things like that. Uh, what do I do? Where do I start? Yeah, that's a great question. I wish I had a book that I could hand you that would have all the examples in JavaScript, but instead I have a, a bunch of books with all the examples in Java, which is the uh, non-script edition of JavaScript. It's the light edition, if you will. Yeah, you know, I would I would go back to some of the classics. Uh, a lot of people learned a lot about just the breadth of design thinking out there by looking at Martin Fowler's refactoring books. Uh, and patterns books back in the early 2000s. Some of my personal favorites are domain-driven design, which is just identifying a way of, you know, getting away from the spaghetti of having a file listing that that contains 15 different concerns, but instead like articulating a worldview that like tells you how to um, uh, model and structure uh, uh, your software to map to how humans actually talk about the problems that it's solving, right? Uh, that makes it more maintainable because everyone uses that language already. There's, a, I think, a just treasure trove of books that are 10 years or older that we could all benefit from. And I know Chuck knows a lot of them. A lot of the books, you named a lot of the books that I would have recommended. We've done book clubs on a lot of them on this show or on Ruby Rogues. Unfortunately, I don't think I'll ever have it in me to write a book. That's maybe the ultimate thing to be able to say is like, here's all my opinions and here's the book to go with it. And they're um, on paper. So now yeah. hold more weight. Yes. And I'm more important because I am now a published author. I want to have written a book. I just don't have the appetite to write one. Uh, Ghostwriters sound like the solution for that. <laughs> Does this just happen as a community matures? Is it just a function of the age? I mean, JavaScript has been around a really long time. There have been people doing it for a really long time. But, but, but I would consider the JavaScript community of today feels like it just kind of came about through Node. And that's not very old. But will it just happen naturally? as people in the community mature and, and the community itself gets older or does it oh, oh man a deliberate yeah. action 
Yeah, this gets at one of my favorite phenomenon in like the sort of social side of, of how language ecosystems rise and fall. You know, I got into to Java uh, when I was first learning to program in the late 90s. And you could just see this like Cambrian explosion of stuff getting created as people realized they could publish a jar to a website, a personal website. People could download the jar. You know, you started to see tooling like Maven come along that could like make it easier and easier to stuck in additional uh, jars where dependencies in Java. And Ruby was the same thing. You know, the first couple of years, everything needed to be invented all over again, right? Like if you needed a thing that made an HTTP request in, in a nice API, somebody had to be the guy who made that. And so it's a great way to get in the ground floor and publish stuff and create a lot of very kind of core important tools. And nodes had that phase, right? We're past that. But like the next phase is a stabilization. People start to build higher order stuff like frameworks. People start to ask questions about like, well, I've got this legacy three-year-old app now and it's a mess. How do I rein that in? You know, I think that the interest in Node.js about testing has increased. When you start to get into like, you know, phases beyond that, you start to look at like, what does enterprise adoption look like? What are their concerns that they want to uh, make sure are taken care of uh, if they are to adopt it or if they're to maintain it? And as things start to settle down, it's inevitable that you'll have a lot of the big names who are mostly they're they're excited about new shiny stuff they'll start to leave and naturally you'll have a lot of attrition because a lot of the problems are just solved now um, i think we're gonna see that in node i don't know if we'll ever see that when it comes to web technologies writ large because everything is constantly evolving and there's just so much behind it uh, but i think you're already starting to see node stabilized to some degree just because people like me are starting to you know come to the table and talk about it so I read this article and I really, really enjoyed it. I liked your analysis of, hey, this is a problem. There's a solution. Here's, you know, how Test Double handles it. And there's a few points that really stuck out at me. In fact, one thing that was interesting is you said, hey, I've created these uh, convenience functions. And let me know, as far as I understand, Sinon doesn't have these. Let me know if I'm wrong. And I was looking and I'm like, I'm pretty sure Sinon could do that. I went and looked and I'm like, yeah, that could, it could do that. And I sent you this email and then you responded with this very well thought out, very intelligent, obviously something you've really done a lot before saying it's actually not the same thing because of this, 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 and this. So I can tell right off the bat that you really understand the problem domain very well. But again, like I was saying, it's pretty impressive that what you're looking for is a solution that is opinionated and leads you to the right space. So a couple of things that Testable does that I really like as an improvement over sign is one thing that you mentioned. It focuses on a specific task or set of tasks related to testing. And rather than sign on, which tries to be everything to everybody, it's got its opinions and it says, do things this way and do them right. And they're easy and straightforward to do. And I like that. I was uh, a huge, not a big fan of sign on's mocks. Sign on has both spies, stubs and mocks. And I pretty much stubs is a super set of spies. So I would always use stubs and mocks act differently than stubs. And I didn't like the way that they work. And you actually talked about in this year article that mocks and sign on violate the AAA rule. And so for those that don't know what the AAA rule is, that's the arrange, act, assert. And so this is just generic advice when you're writing tests. A test should be in three phases, right? You should arrange it and set everything up. Then you should make take one action and change the state somehow. And then you should assert or check that what happened is indeed what you expected to happen. And it's been discovered over a long time. When you violate that, you become you start making tests that are less easy to maintain. And so the way that mocks work in sign-on is that they 
screw up the order. You have to assert first, right? And then you can act afterwards. And so I really like how test double allows you to do the same thing that mocking does, but allows you to assert last. So that was a big, that for me, that was a big thing. Was it hard for you to find a way to make that whole thing work? Or was that pretty straightforward for you that, oh, I want it to be like this and this is how I can do it? The implementation for the library is pretty simple, I think. And the best way to explain it is to say, you know, to anyone listening who's made it this far, who's never used a mocking library before and is probably somewhat confused, if you have a fake function, there's really two things that you want to be able to do with it if for the purpose of writing a test. One, you want to make it return stuff given a set of arguments. So if I have a, a fake function called mark and I want it to return woof, I need to be able to configure that somehow. And the way that you do that in testable is you say td.win, and then inside the parentheses, you just call the thing like you want it to be called by the thing, by, by your subject uh, that's under test, and then say, then return woof. To verify it, I tried to make it as simple as possible by just making it completely symmetrical. You say td.verify, uh, and you can verify that an interaction took place. And that's really only appropriate if the thing that you're testing has a side effect. And so you can't tell by a return value that you like, you know, uh, did its job. And, and that's it. I mean, it's just this real simple data structure, essentially, of keep track of what all the test doubles are. Every time somebody stubs something, throw that in an object and remember it for later. And then every time somebody invokes it, go look through all of the stubbings in reverse order and be like, okay, the first one that applies, like maybe it was passed with the argument one, if that matches uh, the stubbing configuration, return that thing or, you know, call back that thing or return this promise, depending on how you've configured it. And so what I found is that if you have an opinionated API that's definitely narrow, it makes the implementation easier because you don't have to think of so many edge cases. And because this is such a simple kind of transactional way of looking at, at mocking, uh, it's really not that complex of a library. Yeah, so I was pretty impressed that you managed to figure that and, and make this library handle that, the whole verify these interactions and do it in a simple way and still maintain the arrange act assert uh, setup that you want to see out of tests. And whenever you can't see that, it's very frustrating. And one of the big reasons why with Cyanon, I never used mocks was because it violated the arrange act assert that and it was just kind of a more unwieldy API. I also really like this. I think you made a good choice with the whole recording API. Like you call it, you actually call what you want you want it to do and tell it when it ha when this happens, you know, return this. So you're kind of recording what you want it to happen and then you make it go. And if it happens according to plan, then everything works out. And if not, either errors are thrown or you get that whole, hey, you didn't call this method with the right functions or you know, right parameters. So, yeah, if, if if anyone goes and checks out Testable's README, they'll the first thing you'll see is that the API is kind of goofy. It's unlike a lot of JavaScript APIs out there because you're actually, you know, you configure the thing by calling it exactly like you want to see it. And it works that way by very simple implementation that's not black magic, even though it might feel that way because it's so different. But the reason I did it was I didn't want to have to introduce an API to describe how a function gets invoked because we already have that. It's called a programming language, and that's all what they're all about. Is, is <laughs> uh, so so just invoke the function how you want to see it, uh, and that way you can easily grep from your tests into your source code. You can copy and paste from the test into the production code if you need to save a step. 
Uh, it makes everything a lot easier to find instead of having, you know, some poor man's uh, attempt at imitating what it looks like to call a function by configuration, like by having a chainable API, you just call it. Right. That was awesome. Another thing I'm super impressed with is your error messages. Again, I haven't used it, so I haven't gotten to a place where it's like, oh, you promised these error messages, but you didn't deliver. You know, in this case, I'm getting a totally unusable error message, but at least according to the documentation, the error message that you're putting out is really, the testable puts out is really impressive because like, it's very readable. It says, yeah, this is an example. I'm going to read from the documentation for people that are just listening, right? Uh, if you verify that what you wanted was that uh, method was called with the parameter of Jane, for example, then, and what happens is it was called with a parameter of Joe, this, a string, right? So the error message says, error, unsatisfied verification, wanted, called with Jane, but actually, but was actually called with Joe, right? It just reads exactly what your problem is and gets you right to it. And you point out that in sign-on or if it's something in your hand roll, you might at best get, hey, true is false or worse, just get something else completely unintelligible. Now, it's so frustrating to work with libraries or technologies where you have to begin memorizing, oh, I've, this error message what this really means is this thing, right? And you begin memorizing what different error messages or different exception types actually mean and the likely culprits that they are. But when the error message actually points you right at the problem, that's a great. One of the reasons I love Elm, for example, is it's really good at doing that. So I was really impressed with you the know, uh, Chuck, effort you put into it. Right on, man. Yeah, Chuck mentioned earlier, uh, Jim Wyrick was one of the first people he sat down with and wrote some tests that used mocks in them. And one thing that Jim impressed upon me when I was writing um, me, which is a spy style testable library for Ruby uh, a few years ago, he sat me down. He was like, the most important thing in any testing library are the messages because the messages should be able to tell the person everything they need to either fix the test or if they're practicing TDD, like take the next action without having to go and print something out or debug something or take some you know, unrelated step, like, cause that all breaks flow. And so making sure that all of the testing tools that I write have really, really great messages, as well as an ability like in testable, a lot of people get confused about mocks. You can always pass any mock to td.explain and it'll tell you what the current state of it is, how it's been configured and how it's been verified just That's to give cool. you a, a, a heads up of this, this is what you're currently looking at instead of waiting for something to blow up. Right. Yeah. And that was another really cool feature is that whole explain function that tells you exactly what happened to it, which when you are practicing test driven development, what you want is to get into a very simple and straightforward flow of I make a small change into a test and now it's broken. And then I make a small change to my code and it goes, it starts passing again. And I'm slowly working myself and I never get to a point where I have to spend an hour or a half an hour digging into some weird issue. Even five minutes is too long. Digging into some weird issue like, ah, this isn't working. How do I make this work? You don't. You want to avoid that as much as possible. And mocking libraries are often the place where this can happen, where you have something set up, and all you just get is a failure. It just says, no, nope, didn't work. And you don't know why, because you don't, you're having a hard time seeing under the covers. And these messages, like letting it know, hey, you called it with this parameter, then you called it with these parameters, and then you called this other function with these parameters, gives you perfect introspection into what's going on in your code. And I really, I really like that feature as well. Awesome, man. Thanks. I really appreciate it. I'm really unusual in that I very much like compliments. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Well, I've got 15 minutes until the next podcast, so we need to get to picks. Jameson, do you want to start us off with picks? Yes. My first pick is unemployment. Uh, I, no, so sad. I, it, we but parted happy. amicably. I like Kuali. It's a great place to work if, if you're looking, but I'm going to be taking a month or so at least to, to do nothing and just be a dad and, and do React Rally stuff. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. I've never really done that in my life, which leads into my second pick, React Rally. React Rally is a conference that Matt Zabriski and I are putting on in Salt Lake City, August 25th and 26th. We are just kind of finalizing preparations for right now, and we're really excited about how it's shaping up. Uh, it's focused on React. Hopefully, you got that from the name, but really excited about the speakers we have, the events that we have, the kind of theme and the setup of the conference. I think it should be a really good time for um, attendees and speakers and, and everybody. So check that out. Uh, my last pick is not self-serving <laughs> for a change. Uh, it's just a tweet by Julia Evans where she talks about how to be a wizard programmer. Um, I really, really, really like her kind of thoughts on programming and development. And this one, she talks about how important the skill of asking questions and being around people who can help answer your questions is. But then after that, eventually, if you keep doing that, you'll get to questions that other people can't answer. And then that's where you have to like figure out the answer. And you might be the first person ever to ask that question and figure out the answer. Uh, and that's kind of what makes someone a great developer. So those are my picks. Awesome. Amy, what are your picks? Okay. So I actually don't have any technical picks this week because as we were talking about at the beginning of the show, I've been going through a lot of uh, just like personal things that will in time probably come out. So it's been really, really rough couple of three weeks for me. And so my pick this week is probably going to be to take a step back. And as you look around and you're just like going through your day to day, one thing that a pastor did a sermon once that I really, really liked is, you know, if you're like on the road and somebody cuts you off and you get angry with them, just maybe take a deep breath and try to think, you know, you don't know necessarily what that person's going through. Maybe they're rushing to the emergency room because someone in the back of the car is really sick or, you know, who knows. But I guess that's my pick this week is to just kind of Try to see the good in people. So that's it. <laughs> awesome. Joe, what are your picks? Uh, so this is going to sound kind of funny, but my first pick is going to be sign on JS. Uh, <laughs> How rude. <laughs> Depending on what your second pick is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Thanks for putting me under some pressure. No, um, we've been talking a lot about some of the prior problems with the sign on API and uh, how test driven or testable JS uh, seeks to solve those with a slightly more opinionated and focused uh, framework, which I really like. But I think one thing that could be missed in all of this is the fact that sign on solves a problem well and is a great tool. Maybe it's the day of test double has arrived and uh, it will slowly become the de facto mocking library, but that doesn't take away what Christian Johansson did with sign on. And so I want to pay my respects to that. We had him on the show long ago, many years ago. And uh, I was really excited to talk to him because I used sign on a ton and was really impressed with the work that he did and the, the pioneering that he did to make a really good mocking framework. So I want to pick sign on as a show of respect and uh, just uh, all the difficult work that he did to give us something that really worked. And so that's going to be, that's going to be my pick. All right. Um, I've got some picks here, mostly not technical picks. I've got a whole bunch of stuff going on this week. 
I'm going to be out next week because I'm going up to uh, Wood Badge, which is Boy Scout leader training. But this last week, I read a book or listened to a book on Audible. Um, it's by Zig Ziglar, and it's How to Stay Motivated. And it's kind of funny. I just feel like um, I have better ideas about how to do better with life. I mean, it's not any one grand idea that things are, you know, that makes things better, but just a whole bunch of principles that you can apply in your life that help things get better. So I've actually set the goal to listen to everything Audible has from Zig Ziglar that's in English because I have Spanish programs and stuff on there too. I'm not a fluent Spanish speaker. Um, I get better with Spanish as it gets closer to Italian. We'll put it that way. But anyway, um, super great books. I'm currently reading uh, Over the Top and See You at the Top, which are two of his other books. Uh, they're not very long. Uh, the audio programs on Audible are terrific because he's actually speaking. He's not just reading the book. And they are terrific. I know Zig died a few years ago, but what he's teaching there, I think, are sort of timeless principles for people to be successful in life. So if you're if you're looking for something like that, then definitely check it out. And then the other pick I have, uh, I read these books quite a long time ago. I'm, I think most people have at least heard of them, but I've been rereading or re-listening to the Harry Potter books. And uh, it's just a really nice way to relax. So I'll just put that out there. Justin, what are your picks? Today, my first pick is going to be a uh, an OS distribution for Raspberry Pi called RetroPie that kind of comes out of the box uh, and lets you uh, uh, throw a bunch of NES Nintendo game like into its emulators and get into a TV and then, you know, you've got a deck of card size like retro game console. Uh, it solves a real problem for me, which is I travel three quarters of the year the last couple of years and I love to online each night. Uh, and so it really like probably the thing I hate most about traveling to like a rhythm of, uh, uh, of gaming. Uh, so, so I think I'll be able to travel with it. Now the downside is it's in this like clear plexiglass box uh, and there's like memory chips and stuff poking out. So I'm sure the TSA is going to confiscate it before. But at least as long as it lasts, uh, I'm excited to have it. The second pick is a, a talk that I saw in uh, Norway last month. It's a, how Elm can, can make you a better JavaScript developer by one Jameson Dance and somewhat recently. So if that hasn't been a pick on the show yet before, I'd strongly recommend it. I see dozens of talks every year, and this one made me sit up straight because I learned something. And it was entertaining. I thought it was really good. Uh, so whoever Jameson is, that was a good talk. And then on the topic of conferences again, I'm actually going to be in Nebraska for the very first time in my life at the end of August to keynote NEJS, a Nebraska JavaScript conference, uh, over in Omaha. And it's a single-track, uh, single-day conference. It looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. So if you're in the area, uh, I hope you can check it out. All right. Uh, people want to follow up with you, get to know you better. They want to get hired by test double or they want to hire test double. What do they do? Easiest thing to do is to, uh, uh just email us. Uh, you can say hello at testdouble.com and say hi, and we'll find a time to have a chat. You can find us obviously at testdouble.com or there on Twitter. If, uh, if talking to a corporation is too scary, I'm Searles on Twitter. Uh, and I've got open DMs, and I'm always happy to talk to anyone about anything, uh, even if you're just looking for some free tech support or free advice. All right. Well, I know that the Internet tends to misspell stuff. So how do you spell Searles? Searles? Uh, so my wife's a teacher, and she teaches her kids every year on day one that you spell Searles or pronounce it uh, like the word pearls, uh, but with an S instead of a P. So it's S-E-A-R-L-S. 
All right, we'll have that in the show notes too. But I know some people just listen to the show and then they might tap it in on their phone. So, all right, well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Thanks for coming, and we'll catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit cachefly.com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests. 